Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Ears of the Americans. Hope you are doing well. Uh, here we are on May 15th of 2021, uh, almost at the midpoint of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. And as we always do on the show, uh, we hope that you're staying healthy and safe uh, and healthy. Uh, if you haven't yet, be sure to check us out on Instagram. We are uh, partnering with McDonald's and IW Group this month to celebrate seven amazing and often untold Asian American stories. And so this week, we shared photos, words, and voices from three awesome Asian Americans. Sun Mi, a graphic novelist from Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, Steve Kim, a USC professor and a, a founder of a nonprofit called Project Kinship out here in Los Angeles. And today, or yesterday, we shared the story of Kana Hatakeyama uh, from Brooklyn, New York, who is a filmmaker. Um, great photos uh, by our friends Eric and Emmanuel on both coasts. And so shout out to them and, and to thank um, everybody who's been a part of this wonderful project. Uh, today's episode is one of my favorites. Um, I've been a big fan of his work. I think we all are um, for a very long time and just so oh so much of what we learn about uh, what's going on in our community, particularly from New York. And so uh, really honored and truly excited to share with you uh, the stories and the uh, the words of uh, Sefan Kim, uh, who is uh, who was until this week just a, a report, uh, reporter at ABC 7 in New York. And just yesterday, it was announced that he'd also be a correspondent for ABC News nationally. And so congratulations to Sefan. Um, I wish we could say we, we timed this episode in, court, in conjunction with this big, big news, but um, congratulations to you um, and to all of our journalist friends out there. Uh, thank you for what you do. Continue telling your stories. Um, and don't forget to rest and to share your own stories because we want to support you in all that you do. And so without much further ado, here now is my conversation with Seifan Kim. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. And uh, we hope you're doing well. Um, we're in the middle of May. And as you're listening to this, we continue to be um, surrounded by what seems like an endless barrage of not good news, uh, not just here stateside only, uh, but across the world as our uh, Indian brothers and sisters uh, deal with a, a um, un unstoppable rise in, in COVID and um, just seeing the devastation there. Uh, more recently, uh, this past week, seeing the violence um, in West Asia and in, in the Palestine area of um, people just going through so much and, and uh, people, children getting uh, killed. And there's just a lot for us to deal with. I know that as we sit here in May, we are doing our best also to commemorate and to celebrate our community and our culture and the people who uh, are on the forefront of these. And for so many of us, the overwhelming majority of us, we have the luxury and the privilege to sit at home and watch and read and to process all these news stories as they happen, really from the safety of our homes. And even for us, it is a lot to bear. Uh, today, I am really excited and truly honored and, and humbled to share this conversation with a friend of mine who's been on the forefront of covering these stories, particularly in New York City, where so much of the events have been happening. And so uh, it is my great honor to welcome Seifan Kim to the show. Hi, Seifan. Well, thanks for having me. Really appreciate having this discussion, and we need to continue having this dialogue, so it's really important to be here. Uh, before we get started, how are you doing, man? <laughs> That's a good question, right? Uh, you know, I'm holding up. It, it's funny because you generally don't think about how you're doing until somebody asks you. Um, you know, the, the truth of the matter is this is obviously undeniably 
personal to a degree. You can separate yourself as much as you can as a journalist. And, you know, for the first few weeks of this coverage, I think I did that, put one foot in front of the other. In fact, I, and this is nothing, what I'm doing today is nothing different than what I've done for 20 years. It just so happens that the moment has met me, so to speak. Um, and everyone's paying attention now. But when all eyes were sort of on this coverage the first few weeks, it was more or less just doing my job. Um, but I know exactly when it sort of start, had this cumulative effect on myself and my own mental health. It was the day that uh, that 36-year-old Asian man was stabbed in his back in Chinatown. Um, I remember, you know, because I'm, as you can tell, deeply sourced on this and arrived on scene before anyone else had gotten there uh, early enough where you know, I was within arm's reach of the eight-inch knife drenched in blood, not to be graphic, right? Um, and just the pool, the pool of blood lying on the street. Um, and it's awfully hard to, to not be impacted by that. And I think in that moment, I definitely felt a little different, uh, up until that moment, we've been sort of covering this, what was a trend of the vulnerable, uh, the elderly women. This was a first time, in, at least in, in the current coverage where the profile of the victim didn't fit that he was a young man, yeah. uh, attacked in a way that was completely unavoidable. And I remember, you know, just focusing on getting on the air, um, for the 11 p.m. newscast and afterwards I got home parked the car and one of my anchors called me and she was just calling to check in just to see how I was doing the very same question that you asked and I guess up, to, up until that moment nobody asked me that question and so I never asked myself how I was doing and I gotta be honest after I hung up the phone I just broke down in tears um, didn't quite understand why but of course it's obvious why completely unexpected you know and so I reached out to several friends and um as you know, there's a great organization that I'm a part of, AAJA, which is the Asian American Journalists Association. I have to really say that that AAJA family has been, you know, pretty important in, in holding me up. You know, um, I have colleagues who constantly check in on me. I think we, we have sort of a we shared unique experience in that we all were born in the skin and walk in these shoes, but we also are journalists. So they have sort of the additional perspective of knowing what it's like to be this close to it. And so I really appreciate that, that support system being there every few weeks. You know, um, I'll catch myself in a in a moment of peace, and and that's when that's when uh, you know the pain and the trauma just sort of um, catches up to you and catches you off guard, right? So, uh, you know, it's it's hard not to um, you know feel something, right? You absorb the trauma of every victim after victim after victim, and I think it's safe to say that very few journalists covering this have. Um, spoken face to face with so many victims at this unrelenting pace, and it's natural that you begin to absorb it, and then it's also natural that it begins to trigger your own trauma. Because again, we've all faced anti-Asian bias and hate throughout our lives, uh, and so you know this is personal to all of us. But you can't help but at some point triggering your own personal experiences, and so yeah, it has been tough. But at the same time, like this is why I do what I do. Uh, ultimately became a journalist to be a voice for the voiceless. It just so happens that my community is the most voiceless. And so, you know, it was just time to rise to the occasion. So I'm hanging in there. Thanks for asking. I, I'm, I'm so glad. Um, I, I am so glad for so many reasons because um, whether it is you, Dion in San Francisco, Michelle, who heads AAJA writing for the post, who went to Atlanta to tell the stories that, nobody else could tell how fortunate are we as much as we 
have to also reckon with the fact that there still exists a lack of proper representation in newsrooms, and there still exists a lot of discrimination and gaslighting that goes on, that you were there, as you said, to meet the moment, to share our stories with the nuance and context that we know for damn sure somebody else would have messed up. And to, from starting with mispronunciation of names that we've often dealt with, to the wrong assumptions of different cultures and ethnicities and understanding how people want space versus not, in particular after Atlanta, um, you know, AJ's video, their website crashed, right? Because that really showed that the average news station anywhere in the world did not have the proper resources or training or personnel to cover an Asian story in a way that was respectful and, and nuanced. And so, um, you know, it is both... Uh, Really, really a, a blessing that you were there, that you continue to be there, but also really unfortunate that um, you are being asked, as, as so many other friends are, um, to do both, right? To to process, but to uh, put that aside and, and to share their stories. And um, I really wanted to bring you on and, um, you know, we're going to have Dion and Michelle on here at some point as well, and to really put the storytellers in the storytelling seat and, and learn a little bit more about you. Um, we don't often see, and to be frank, Asian American men, Korean men in particular, in journalism in America. Uh, we have a few. Um, Greg Lee in San Francisco is, is the dear brother of a very good friend of mine. And, um, you know, Howard uh, of, of ESPN fame, obviously, and so many other folks, but there's not too many. Um, and in particularly from from our generation. And so share with us sort of what led you to wanting to become a journalist and what, you know, um, how did the Kim family come to America? What were your early influences in journalism and other things that led you into this path? Yeah, uh, before I get into that, I would say that, you know, Greg Lee is a mentee of mine and a good dude. And Howard is a, you know, friend of a long time. And um, again, it goes to the sort of the, the close-knitness of the AAJA family. But at the same time, uh, I'm, I know every Asian male brother in this business because, to your point, there's not many of them, right? I can count, you know, maybe on two hands, maybe, maybe you know, on four hands, who knows? But uh, it's certainly not enough. Um, and that really is the reason how I, how and why I got into this. You know, my parents, they, uh, they met in this country in the 70s uh, in Philadelphia, where I was born and raised. Um, and I grew up in Philly in the 80s and 90s. Um, not a city that's afraid to let you know that you're different, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, I often have sort of compare stories about our shared experiences growing up here. And I think it's safe to say that mine was pretty overt. You know, I think we dealt with different variations and degrees of, of racism and bias. Uh, in Philly, it's, it's pretty blunt. You know, it's, it's, it's every, every day of my life. I heard uh, a racial slur every hour of the day. I'm not even exaggerating. Um, I got into a fist fight every other day, usually, you know, five on one, and I got my butt kicked. Um, it was good training in a way because, you know, in this world, in this business, in this country, looking like the way that I do, uh, you're going to get knocked down before you have to get back up, right? You're going to have to hear no before you hear yes. So in some ways, I, I credit Philadelphia and, and the upbringing there for conditioning me um, for what the real world really is like, maybe not as uh, overt. Um, but, you know, I had the fortune of having parents that understood sort of the bigger picture. They were not typical in that they 
you know, forced me or, or pushed me to go into the obvious, you know, stereotypical professions. Um, my father was very civically engaged. He was what you would call a, a community sort of activist. Um, he was the first Asian American commissioner appointed under then Mayor Good. Um, he then went on to uh, found a nonprofit, which to this day serves North Philadelphia. Um, it serves, you know, all kinds of Asian people across across you know the the multi coalition the the non monolithic community that what we are and it also serves quite a bit of Black and Brown folks too so if anything my father for decades uh, showed me through action um, the value of community service and and coalition building my mom was a nurse uh, retired after forty fifty some odd years um, so clearly two individuals who are civic minded. Um, both of them, interestingly, had pushed my younger brother to be a journalist and me to be a lawyer because um, I'm good at arguing. <laughs> but <laughs> it somehow turned out that I went into the, the news business um, and it worked out. So the reason why I decided I had a pretty clear moment, and, and this is unusual, right? I, I think I knew what I wanted to do with my life since I was um, before high school almost. But that's pretty rare. I think, you know, one of these days when I was getting my butt kicked, uh, I asked myself, what is it about the way that I look that there's this disconnect with the rest of America? And clearly it was even obvious to me at a young age that there is a lack of representation. So I had thought, look, you know, um, I'm not going to be an actor. First, I can't act. And that's that's for most people a pipe dream, right? And, and the other issue was, even at a young age, I understood this. There weren't roles that were sort of like available to Asian people uh, that were not the stereotypical role, right? So there, was, there wasn't the sort of control and the, the authority that we have today over telling our own story. So what I did recognize that in the news business, um, I didn't have to tell my own story. If I, was, if I could be in a living room, in the background even, where an Asian man's face is telling you what's important in your day, and you're supposed to trust me to know what's important in your day, uh, I've automatically sort of ingrained myself as uh, a fabric of your society. And if mm. that young child whose parents had the newscast on in the background saw that Asian man's face and didn't think, even if it's subconscious, that that Asian guy is other or foreign and didn't go pound on the next Asian kid at school the next day, if I just had one, you know, example like that, then I thought that I ultimately, you know, I did my job. So mm. it also happens that I fell in love with the business that, you know, had no idea, obviously, as a, as a young kid, if I had the right traits or the personality to be a journalist or broadcast journalist, no less, no less. And I was lucky enough that in college when I started interning and working, that it turned out that I was a perfect match. Um, so it mattered that more than just that I wanted to do this, but I was actually good at it and I enjoyed it. So, you know, that's, that's a long and short of how I got here. For me, that guy was Michael Kim on ESPN. I think learned to be a sports person because, you know, that was sort of what the American, you know, I came here when I was eight and, um, I don't know if I fell in love with sports or I, I fell into the expectation that an American boy should. Um, but, you know, back then uh, when ESPN2 was really the uh, the second channel, um, you know, they had Michael on at like midnight or very, very late. And um, I would intentionally watch his show thinking, holy crap, this is great. And also even having the insight as as an elementary and junior high school kid of like, why the hell are they putting the Asian person at the back when he's just as talented? Right, like, why isn't he getting the prime time spots? And we know now why, and still persists to this day. Um, but you know, I, I think you 
had the great insight as a child to understand the power of visibility and the power of storytelling that, um, you know, we're, we're collectively starting to learn a little bit more. Transitioning from Philly to New York, you're also a, um, I, I want to get your rank right. Um, you are a... Uh, I was a sergeant in the Army Reserve. So uh, how did that? Uh, yeah. How did that happen? Uh, you know, I'd love to say that I was some bleeding heart patriot, but that'd be a lie, right? So, uh, I mean, I love this country, but I wasn't exactly, um, the military type. Well, for me, it was quite rather simple, you know, Korean American family, uh, Korean parents, military service is just sort of, a you know, almost a given, uh, NYU 1999 is my freshman year. And a year in my mom says to me, Hey, you know, this is an expensive school. Your scholarships don't add up to be quite enough. She, being a registered nurse, had a lot of friends who were medics in the reserves mm. and said, hey, you know, would you do this to help pay for the bills? And of course, being a good first son, I said yes, not knowing full well what I was getting myself into. That was the year 2000, which if you do the math is pre 9-11. Yeah. So uh, I got in, I enlisted in the military uh, in a world that changed literally overnight um, the year following, um, you know, and... I lived in New York during all of it too, right? So sort of a side note here, I was in the World Trade Center when it was hit, ironically. Uh, I was actually down there um, with my college roommate who was working at JP Morgan upstairs, and I was taking the train uh, to transfer to New Jersey to actually report to my reserve unit because I had gotten back from training at Fort Lee, Virginia um, when the planes hit. So... Obviously, we got out okay. Um, I'll spare you the details of what we saw that day, but uh, you know, it was the military thing was was sort of like the intent going in, and then the life I lived during it was it changed dramatically, for, you know, because of that terror attack. Um, but so I did that. The traditional reserve contract at the time was you do six years and then two years sort of inactive. So it overlapped with my school. Mm-hmm. It allowed me to you know to do this part time, uh, help pay for some college bills, GI Bill. And at the same time, finish school and also, you know, find work in journalism. How did that change the way you saw the world? Because you, again, to, to sort of put the pieces, incomplete puzzle together for, for now, um, son of a very civically engaged uh, Korean immigrant in Philadelphia, which, as you shared, and as uh, many of us know, um, not, you know, let, let's just call it a blunt city. Um you know, have, having gone to school in New York City, having experienced 9-11, particularly from a reserve officer's perspective, but also with this desire to be a representative face and voice to share stories. Um, like how, how, how was that sort of balance? Because there you are representing America as, uh, as an Army soldier, um, still going to school, processing 9-11, seeing what was happening around you. Um, when, was there a continued conviction that you wanted to go into journalism from that point? Or um, did that also give you pause in sort of your, your chosen path, given what was going on in the world? No, I'll give you completely honest. Nothing nothing diverted me from journalism, period, full stop. Uh, I was trying to get out of the military so I could do this. Um, I needed to do less of that to do more of this. Mm. Uh, it's not even that you know, I wasn't good at it. In fact, uh, when I went to PLDC, which is um, Leadership Academy for uh, non-commissioned officers, um, I had an instructor who was... Uh, a former Navy, a former uh, Special Forces who had, you have to be recommended. And, you know, I graduated the Commandant's List, but it would require me re-enlisting and recommitting more time in my life. And I wasn't, that's not where I was going, you know. Uh, 
again, this is, I have, I have so much respect for, you know, those who volunteer, right, to serve. Um, I don't regret doing it, uh, but it wasn't my path and, and I wasn't going to, you know, commit more time to it. This was my, this was my, you know, my fate. And so I always knew that it was, it was a, it was an experience that most certainly helped me um, in life and as an adult and as an American, right, to understand uh, what it's like to sacrifice and be around others who share that that love love for country. There's there's no other experience that can quite teach you that. Um, so I don't I don't in any way would take it away. I just it wasn't something that I would do 20 years of though when it comes down to it. Mm. Um, and, and even in the military, you know, like just like anything else in this country, systemic racism is baked in. You know, when I enlisted, they would say to you, you know, in the military, in the army, we're all green. We're not black, brown, white, or mm. yellow. But, you know, I had drill sergeants tell me to go back to China. So we're talking about a person who volunteered to bleed and die for my country and being told by an authority figure, a minority authority figure, a person of color, to go back to China. I mean, if that isn't proof that systemic racism is baked in, you know, I don't know what is. And it didn't. And the, the weird thing is it didn't it didn't like turn me off to the military. It was just sort of something I was used to growing up all my life and knew that it was everywhere around me. And it's just, why would the military be any different? Right. Mm. Um, so if anything, like it only reinforced my narrative, it only reinforced that like, okay, I'm on a mission for a reason because there are things that cannot be changed unless you really start telling these stories and, and, and the voices are heard. Um, even within the army, that wasn't going to happen. You know, one lonely soldier isn't going to change a whole system, right? So it, it, it took a larger platform. Uh, and I think we're having that conversation today. Thank God. And we still, I mean, your, your experience isn't unique, right? Um, you know, uh, we're, we're talking here during Heritage Month a lot about proud Asian Americans. And uh, we can't have that discussion without talking about the 442nd, uh, the most decorated, you know, residential combat team in American history, because so many of them died. Um, you know, uh, luckily their legacy will be uh, commemoratized here in a few weeks when they uh, release the stamp. Um, but, and, and even Congressman Andy Kim talks about his security clearance being denied even before he requested it because of a question of allegiance and loyalty, um, just because I share last name, right? And, and so it's it's this, you know, I, I struggle with it too, you know. Why continue to exert our audacity to want to exist here equally when the system seems so rigged and unwelcome of it all. Um, but you have the unique perspective of sharing some of the stories um, in the world's most diverse city, representing us and representing me and you and, and so many young kids um, who, as you mentioned earlier, can look to you and say, hey, if, if Saifan can be a newscaster and if he can share these stories, um, how wonderful is it? Um, you know, you, you mentioned at the top of the interview uh, on February 25th when you covered the stabbing in Chinatown, that sort of was a turning point. Um, I, I will say as, as somebody who has observed and followed your online activity on Twitter and on Instagram and um, have used our uh, The Asian Americans Instagram account to amplify some of the much uh, needed stories, I noticed the change because I could feel the pain. I could feel the personal uh, angle to it. And I, I want to know, 
I mean, you started being a professional journalist 18 years ago in 2003. What were some of the other moments where it wasn't a, a longer a job? It was sort of what you were meant to do and that only you, Seifan Kim, could do this job better than anybody else? I don't, I don't think I can answer it that way. So for me, again, I've done nothing different in this moment that I've done in the past 20 some odd years, right? Um, I've done this job the same way. I approach victims the same way, uh, whether it's in this coverage or six months ago or a year ago. Um, I, a lot of journalists, um, sort of as a, as a um, survival mechanism, and it's natural, they tend to um, sort of close their emotions off because otherwise the trauma gets to be too heavy. I've never been that way, for better or for worse, because I feel like uh, in order to tell a person's story, you have to be able to feel their pain. And um, that has a that has a effect, obviously, on my own mental health. But but I think it allows me to tell more authentic stories. And quite frankly, um, you know, again, people have just sort of started noticing what I do now, but to a larger scale. But I've done this in the beginning, right? I mean, if you look at the top of my Twitter page, pinned there is a story from six years ago about uncovering the hidden homeless and the poverty that plagues our community. And I was doing that before it was cool, right? Um, you know, when I when we look at this coverage, and, and so I can understand why you look at sort of like in these chapters, I call it a, a pivot in the tone. It's because I've always known that when I was telling this story in this coverage, that I've known that from the beginning, this would be a story I'd have to tell over a months long, years long period. And each sort of um, chapter, if you will, would have an inflection point. And this was deliberate and conscious. Um, so I knew, obviously, look, I've done this forever. This is not new attacks against Asian Americans, some of which are motivated by hate, some of which just happen to be crimes that happen to have Asian American victims. This has happened for a long time. What's new is that the victims are speaking out. That's the new part, right? It's always been a struggle to find these victims, to connect with them, to get them to trust me and to explain to them, um, which is something that's not they're culturally comfortable with, why it's important to speak out. Uh, if you look at even the beginning of the pandemic, there are plenty of stories sprinkled in throughout that I've done, uh, particularly the one that really sort of caught attention nationally was the 89-year-old Chinese grandmother in Brooklyn who was lit on fire. Yeah. Um, you know, that happened in July. That was before all this. And I knew then that there'd be a moment when uh, accountability would, would uh, it would be a moment for accountability. And in July, I told myself and I told my producer, hold on to this because we've got questions to ask and there's going to be a moment. And then in January, you know, I called her and said, that moment's here. Um, I've seen what Dion was doing in San Francisco. There's no doubt in my mind it was happening here. In fact, there's no doubt in my mind it happens everywhere. Let's just be honest, right? The reality is that, you know, Dion and I are exceptional at our jobs. That's one part of it. But there, there's, I know of colleagues in other cities that are hearing about these things, but are having difficulty reaching victims. Perhaps the, the, the law enforcement side of it isn't as plugged in or they're not as sourced. Um, there's also this this issue of the fact that, you know, where do you find most surveillance cameras? They're, they tend to be clustered in urban environments, right? It, it, I often get this question, which I think is uh, misses the entire point about who is the perpetrator. And, and that's not the point, right? Because it's, the truth is Asian Americans are not immune to bias and hate from any person of any background. It just so happens that these cameras are in communities, urban environments, where these are the types of crimes that occur, right? Um, and so, you know, 
that's why if I look at the chapters, the beginning chapter was I wanted to get your attention. And I think I did that pretty clearly. Then it was we need to sort of confront the system. If you noticed uh, my sit down with the NYPD, uh, they've, they've taken on a much more aggressive posture on this on this issue uh, because that's accountability. Um, quite frankly, they were kind of afraid to touch it, not because they didn't care, but because race is always a complicated issue. And we have to remember that this is coming on the heels of BLM and defund and it's, it's political, right? And so they were almost too afraid to get close to it at the expense of our community is what it is, right? And so essentially I, I had to communicate with them. You got a choice. You can come out and talk to me or I can do this all day and find a victim every day. And it's going to look pretty poorly on you if, if you let me get ahead of this because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep running with this. I'm not going to stop. And they know me. They've, they've dealt with me for many years. That we, there's a mutual respect. And so, you know, obviously you saw that they sat down, we had a conversation. And to their credit, they completely embraced their own mistakes in this and they completely took a more forward leaning position on this. So that was sort of chapter two. You know, I think another chapter was showing that this isn't uh, exclusive to just vulnerable population, right? You had the younger man who was attacked. Then I wanted to sort of show that, hey, this isn't just a certain type of ethnicity or race attacking us. I spent two sleepless nights to out Maura Moynihan, the daughter of the famed, you know, uh, mm. iconic Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, to show that, you know, we have bias coming from us, from people who are affluent, powerful, wealthy, right? There's no exceptions to it. I did a story about how the city of New York sent a letter on official city yeah. You know, letterhead addressed to Ching Chong, right? Uh, it's systemic. I did a story of how an affluent white New Jersey high school compared Stop Asian Hate to a political movement like BLM, right? I, I purposely and deliberately wanted to show that this is broader. I also know that, you know, if we keep showing the same violent punch or shove, it can be desensitizing. Yeah. People will tune out. Uh, we have a short attention span and the moment is fleeting. So my goal has always been read the moment, know when to pivot. And there was obviously a moment, I, it was right around the Atlanta shootings that we thought it arrived in Atlanta happened. And all of a sudden, like the, the attention is magnified. So, you know, that sort of settled down a bit. And then I sort of pivoted into, okay, what what is really happening? What is normalcy? What's happening next? So if you look at the overall arc of the coverage, um, that's why you're seeing the shift in tone is because... I'm trying to broaden the conversation because that's the only way to continue the conversation. The only way to, to have progress is to keep talking about this. And, and to go to your first question, I, I do want to really address this. You know, when you talk about tone, when you talk about um, how you can sort of feel the victim's pain translate in my storytelling. So this is a deliberate thing too, right? Um, there's a story I did that stood out to me about a Korean American dad in Central Park and he was attacked in broad daylight. Now, in that situation, there's no clear indication that it was necessarily a hate-motivated crime. In fact, if you watch that story, you don't even see the perpetrator in it. Now, there's a lot of folks, again, for misguided reasons, get pretty upset when you don't see the perpetrator description, right? But the reason why that story doesn't include the perpetrator is because, to me, that's not how you win this war. You don't win the war by blaming the other. You win it by humanizing ourselves, right? That story was not about an Asian dad who got his ass kicked by XYZ perpetrator. That story is about a dad protective over his family, who by the way, holds no hate in his heart. And the day that America sees him as a dad and not as an Asian guy, he's no longer other, right? The humanization 
of the AAPI community is how we win the war. It's how we show America we belong, we're one of you. Um, it's more than just being accepted, right? We, we, our generation grew up that being the sort of bar, you know, how can we be accepted? I want our kids to grow up saying, no, we belong, right? Our voices matter. Our voices need to be heard and we're no longer invisible. And so that is why I approach my storytelling in that way. I focus on the victims, not on the perps, because the perps, they come from everywhere, right? They have complex motivations. Sometimes it's hate. Sometimes it's, you know, mental health. Sometimes it's poverty. Sometimes it's a crime of opportunity. Sometimes it's all of it, right? It's complicated. I can't solve uh, that problem overnight. No single one of us can. I probably can't solve, no one can solve humanizing, you know, Asian Americans either. But, but I think this is the way, this is the story that's been missing in our narrative. And that's, that's sort of the void I'm trying to fill. Oh man, Saifan. I, I think there's like 10 different things that I want to ask you about. I, I distinctly remember reading your story about the folks, the seniors who take the bus to the casino to get the vouchers to sell it because that's the only way they were going to make money that day. And they would sit in these, uh, you know, and these are not the casinos in Las Vegas that we think about. These are grungy looking buildings that, yeah. you know, literally they just sit there and pass the time and, you know, sell their yep. $10 token and come right back. Um, I, I didn't know you at the time, but I remember reading this. I, I distinctly remember reading it and saying, this is sad. These are yeah. not the, the, the stories that, um, we hear about, and um, I'm sure this, the, the exact statistic has changed, but about a quarter of New York City Asian Americans live at or below the poverty line. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's come down a little bit. I mean, yeah. look, you know, that, that story. That. Right. I mean, look, that story stood out to me because it was, it was a shocker to me, right? I mean, we, I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, innocent. We make this sort of assumption that, oh, they like to gamble. Right? It's a stereotype. Mm-hmm. And and we sort of looked the other way and I was blind to it. And, you know, I, I took that journey with them just one day. And as a young, you know, energetic, healthy young man, that was a tough ride on one day. I can only imagine every day these seniors going through that. But, you know, that's part of the issue, right, is that we ourselves, like our, our culture we're not trained to wear our pain and trauma publicly. In a lot of ways, we're trained to even suppress that. And, and that's fine, but it's not American, right? Like the American mm-hmm. way is not such. Like the American way, you, you make some noise to earn that respect. And in a lot of ways, I look at this moment as sort of the evolution of, of the community. Maybe you want to call it the Americanization of the community, right? It's sort of that next generation taking it one step further from acceptance to belonging. Um, but we need to get over um, this sort of blindness, right? I, I, I often sort of make this, you know, maybe terrible metaphor, but the community is sort of halved, right? You have what I call like the, the Ivy League Asians, right, uh, who live on the Upper West Side in these wealthy enclaves and um, have never been really exposed to struggling to put food on a table or even um, this kind of overt violence, uh, maybe some microaggressions, right? But then you have, to your point, over one in five Asian Americans in New York City that are literally collecting cans to stay alive. Even in White Plains, that grandma, that that Korean harmony that got beat up, she was collecting cans, you know? And, And we need to look at ourselves as a community and say, why have we been so blind for so long? And what can we do to lift ourselves up? And I think that is that disconnect is finally happening now. 
you know, there's a lot of silver linings in this moment. It can seem awfully depressing, but I don't see it that way, right? I see it as an awakening where we've long had overdue these conversations are now finally happening. And, and if that's the good that can come out of this, then I think this is a good moment. I always say, you know, what's, what's not, don't look at this moment as depressing because the attacks are normal. I hate to say that, but it's always happened. What's new is that we're publicly speaking out and how can we look at that as depressing? That's an optimistic view of this thing, right? We are now saying to ourselves, enough, like we're going to be heard. And that can't be anything but good. It, it sucks that we have to think about it th- that way, right? Um, that they're normal. Um, you know, so many of us, and it, there's so many layers to this. W- one of the things that I want to really touch with you on is when we talk about the victims in Atlanta, when we talk about the victims in Indianapolis, there were people who died that were in the 70s. Let's just focus on the fact that regardless of race, that a 70-plus-year-old immigrant grandmother has to work in that type of environment, whether it was cleaning dishes or cooking food or doing laundry or processing FedEx boxes to provide when this was supposed to be the great American dream where we would all have better lives. That part of the story, I think, because of the shock of the deaths and because of the gravity of the situation, I I hope that that's something that we collectively can agree that that's a really unfortunate slippage through of the cracks of the systems that we are so proud of as Americans, that it is the retirement age. It is what we do to care for our elders. And of course, in the Asian and even more specifically yours and my Korean context, we don't we take care of our parents. We take care of our grandparents, right? And it, it is, at least in many of our cases, just assumed, like we all joke, there's no word for nursing home in Korean because they're going to yeah. move in with us, right? And and for them, for us to read these stories of these people who, uh, one of the women just recently started working there because of a need, because of the pandemic. And while it is shocking, that's what we don't talk about enough. And when uh, the grandmother's name, Nancy, you know, in White Plains, out there collecting cans, you know, in front of a fancy department store, getting hit in the face. Like, if we take care of our people, and, and so this becomes such a more broadly um, issue of equity and income and just humanity, right? If they didn't have to work there, maybe they'd be alive today. Maybe those businesses don't exist today, right? If we took care of these people, and if they had a safety net of some sort. And again, you know, we're not here to solve global scale or even national level socioeconomic issues here on the show. But people like you give us the opportunity to not only hear about these stories, but only do it in a way that you can. If anybody else jumps on that casino bus in 2006, right? Not Korean, not understanding the language, the culture, the nuance. That story doesn't come out in the same way. If Michelle doesn't take time away from Washington to go down to Atlanta for a week and just immerses herself in the community, those stories don't come out. I mean, Dion said uh, on, a, on an event that she was doing, the ratio of things she gets versus the things that she actually puts out yeah. is scary. Yeah. Because shame and guilt and Reluctance is unfortunately another layer of our culture where people don't want to out themselves, right? People um, 
don't want to have shame. They feel weird about taking money or getting condolences. They often want to stay silent. I think every single one of us can remember a time when some stuff happened to us or our parents and it was met with just, just let it go, right? Um, let it go. We don't want them to know where we live. We don't want them to retaliate. It's not that big of a deal. We'll buy something. And, you know, and at the same time, I, I don't know what to even think about that, right? Because sometimes I think that is the right thing to do. Like right now, survival is key, actual survival, right? Safety is key. And also trying to balance that, Seifan, with this audacity that we have a presence in this country, that we should have the ability to walk down the street without fear. Um, but even just last week, Baltimore, San Francisco, people getting hit with cinder blocks, being stabbed in broad daylight. Um, I, I know you, you know, we, we all agree that these attacks have been happening, but the intensity and the frequency in which it is within our uh, world now just seems just too much to bear. Um, wh where do we go from here? Are, are there, I don't want to call them trends, but you have eyes and ears where most of us don't. Um, you know, I, I think policing and police response gets very emotional responses from not just ours, but all communities. Um, you know, you're in the thick of uh, New York City where there is a mayor election going on. And there's so many different layers to how we sort of move on from this and what policies and, and procedures and laws can help us move away. Um, how do you remain optimistic? Do you remain optimistic when it comes to our community? Yeah, I mean, look, short answer is yes. Let me address something that you touched on a, a few minutes ago. Uh, my parents, again, were unusual. I've never heard the words uh take it on the chin and move on. Mm. Uh, uh, we are Korean, right? My parents were always like, you fight until the end, until you die. I don't care if they called you a chink, you fight back and we'll tell the principal they called you a chink, right? Because that is the only way that my Korean parents knew how to survive. Um, so for that reason, I can only say that I don't know how to live any other way. This is why I've always fought the fight. This is why we'll always fight the fight. Um, in terms of you know where we go from here, look, I, I'm I, I don't want to get into policy. That's not my lane. Um, I I can only say that from a human level, we need to keep the conversation going. We need to keep talking about this because the problem, if you ask me, from a more human level, is at the end of the day, whether or not an attack is motivated by hate or it's a crime of opportunity, or maybe there's some subconscious bias, right? The root of that is we're seen as other, we're seen as foreign, and other and foreign is vulnerable. And the only way to overcome vulnerable is to not be vulnerable, is to speak out and fight. The more we talk about this, the more America views Asian Americans as not just an, an integral part of the society, but as a group that isn't hiding in the shadows, that is out in front of the spotlight, holding a microphone, that is the beginning to flipping that narrative, right? That is sort of like the beginning of ending this, even if it's this subliminal, subconscious, you know, uh, idea in, in the average American's mind that an Asian person is vulnerable or other, that they don't belong, right? The otherism is what's dangerous here, because when you're when you're other, you know, you can be forgotten, and and people can think that like, oh, well, I can slug that guy, and no one's gonna care, right? So I can only speak to what I do in my lane. You know, I've always told these stories. 
the victims need to keep understanding that this isn't just a moment. Like we need to normalize this part of our American evolution, right? We need to normalize, you know, look, the, the, the fight for civil rights didn't start with us and it won't end with us. And if you look at the arc of history, um, you know, we owe a lot to you know, our black brothers and sisters decades and centuries ago for laying the groundwork. And that didn't start with being silent. That's, that, that, I mean, there's a template laid out for us, right? This isn't like just some theoretical open-ended question. Like we, we have, we're living history. History repeats itself over and over again. Why were so many people stunned at anti-Asian bias during COVID when in 2001, when 9-11 hit, we had you know, Islamophobia rampant for how long? I mean, this is not something that's new to us, right? We need to understand history. And history has shown us that there is a path. Now, we obviously have not reached the final chapter of that, but there's a there's a guideline. There's there's a book for this. Like this isn't like this this isn't like, you know, some some battle we're fighting without a handbook. Like, you know, it's it's pretty simple. Nobody sat nobody sat in the back of the bus and said, I'll just stay here and things got better. Right. I mean, it's just let's just open our eyes to what history is telling us. I often think about what this means for our kids, right? Because um, you, you and I both have kids in, in the same age range and they're so young, they don't process um, any of this stuff. And in a weird way, um, I'm so glad that they're so young um, that they don't have to respond to a lot of this. But um, I, I am grateful that you are where you are doing the work that you do. And um, again, I am such a big believer as, as much as we're both in the content business, Without context, all of it is useless. Yeah. Without understanding the why and the how, the what, the who, what, when, where doesn't really matter as much. Um, and so I know it's hard um, and for aspiring journalists and perhaps other people, current journalists or student journalists out there who look up to you um, as a symbol of not only representation, but of, of strength and of uh, guidance. Um, share with us some thoughts for for the next generation that will continue to follow in your footsteps uh, to cover the stories in the ways that only we can. You know, look. The the long and short of it is that journalism is not a career that you get into it to make money. Um, most of the time, you don't. I've been fortunate enough that the very few people who succeed, you know, can make a good living out of it. But that if that's what your end game in life is, which is fine if it is, don't pursue journalism. Right? Journalism is for those who live and breathe this, um, it's a life, right? Uh, you don't really have days off. When when stuff happens, stuff happens, and you have to answer that call. If you truly believe in the right reasons to do this, then, then follow it. It'll be fulfilling. Uh, we can always use more help on the front lines. Uh, there are always stories to tell. Um, but I, I go back to my motto, you know, if, if you believe that you want to be a voice for the voiceless, well, this is your calling. Right. And if um, if you follow that, no matter what the schedule is and the lifestyle is and what the pay is like, you'll be rich in your heart because you've accomplished something more than just living comfortably and making money. I wish we had more time. Um, I wish we had more time. And one day soon, very, very soon, um, I, I hope to uh, share a drink with you in person whether in New York or here, um, 
I'm actually supposed to go back for my high school reunion later in the year, so we'll make it then. But um, I, I am honored to tell your side of the story because I think often you are there to tell the story of other people. Um, you and all the other journalists are so humble in your nature that you never want to tell your story. You're there to just report and, and to provide context. Um, as, as we wrap, um, you know, the name of the show is The Asian Americans. This is a letter not only to ourselves, but to our children, uh, to, to my daughter and, and all her peers, uh, to make sure that they don't have to talk about this one day. Um, I need them to remember how we experienced it, but I do not find it acceptable that your kid and my kids have to have the same damn conversation when they're our age, because that means we've dropped the ball somewhere. It has to be about progress. It has to be about evolution. So um, share with us your uh, thoughts, um, words of advice, encouragement, perspective uh, to the Asian American community um, in the form of a letter. I'll start. And if you could help us finish it out, uh, dear Asian Americans. We unfortunately will have to have this conversation with our kids. This country was built on racism and it's not going to get solved overnight. It may never will. In some ways it's human. What's going to be different, dear Asian Americans, is that how we as parents tell you how to absorb this. You know, we grew up with immigrant parents who were just surviving and wanted to give us the best. What I would say to my daughter one day and to all the young Asian Americans out there is that when you faced or you're confronted with hate or bias or racism, that doesn't define you. It defines that person. It's powerful, man. If you are listening to us and, and you want to support his work, Stefan's work, the work of so many other uh, Asian American journalists, brothers and sisters in both dealing with all of this stuff in the front lines, exposing them to health and safety risks that so many of us have the privilege of not even thinking about, but also to report and to meet these victims face to face and to uncover the stories that, so that we don't have to. Um, I, I want to draw attention to some of the great work that the Asian American Journalist Association is doing. They can be found at aaja.org. There's a lot of different funds and a lot of different ways that you can donate. Uh, one particular is there's a lot of fundraising going on right now to create a fund so that folks like Stefan and his uh, peers can get care uh, in, in the form of therapy and other mental health and or even just rest. Um, we've been doing a lot of uh, shining of the spotlight on this cause here um, because we need to protect them. Uh, they are often burdened with so much. Um, I, I bet you, Stefan, if I asked you to open up your Instagram DMs, you'd be flooded with stuff. And the majority yeah. of which you can't get to, you don't want to get to. And so what other ways can we support you specifically and, and your peers? Because I know that there are so many people who want to help. No, I appreciate that. I don't really need the support, right? I need I need, I need members of the community to support each other. Um, we're stronger as a whole. Uh, if if we're stronger as a whole, then the stories I tell get healthier, right? So, so think of it that way. You support our storytelling by making our stories more vibrant, and more, you know, more hopeful and about strength and unity and love than we know what we're facing now. But again, what we're facing now is not new. It's not going to go away, but we need to do what we can to flip that narrative. So um, appreciate the thought, but you know, this is what we do. And I started off the show with asking how you're doing and I'll end with um, how are you taking care of yourself? Because it can't be easy. 
Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. It's it's. I probably could take better care of myself um, than I should, but you know, uh, it's like, you know, you don't get to the Super Bowl with a sprained ankle and sit on the bench in the second quarter, right? So the the the, the fight rage is on. Um, you know, there'll be a time to come up for air. I try uh, as much as I can. Uh, it's not easy. You know, I've taken one vacation in the past like four or five months, uh, much needed, but. Even as soon as I get back, you're right in the thick of it. So, you know, it's it's just what it is. Um, you know, there'll be a moment for rest. It's not now. And but the difference just... between this and the Super Bowl, Saifan, is that we know that the Super Bowl has a time limit. It's true. The, and this... there's, a, there's a winner and a loser in the there's end. There's a winner and a loser yeah. and commercial breaks. And, and here, we don't get any of that. And most importantly, um, this has gone for far long, too long than we even thought possible even a year ago. And so... Um, I know, uh, and I'm so grateful for our, our conversations um, via DM and, and this. And um, I, I encourage you, as 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 emboldened and as um, focused as you are, and and doing the work, uh, please take care of yourself. Um, if you if you need us to send you some drinks, some <laughs> some whatever it is to help you get through challenging days. Um, we got some friends who can take care of that for you. Can, and can so, you send me sleep? Well, can you send that? I, I can send you. Uh, <laughs> we can we can send you stuff that will help you sleep better at night. I think. Uh, yeah, we'll talk offline on that one. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for making time. It is yeah. really really great to share your conversation, your story, uh, with our audience and for everybody listening. Please support him and his work. Um, let stations know that you respect and that you value Asian American storytelling. And as as little as it may seem. A like, a share, a retweet, a reference, it all helps because we live in a data-driven era and we need to tell his station managers and uh, other media companies that not only are, do our stories matter, but then our storytellers as well. And so, Saifan, thank you so much for the work that you do. Uh, I, I love you, man. I love the work that you do, and I'm so grateful that you're doing it. Um, and and here's to wishing you a, a very relaxed and long, no Ethernet, no Wi-Fi vacation in the near future for you buddy. well i appreciate it thank you for amplifying the conversation and let's do it again soon okay thank you later man i gotta say that was one of the best conversations the most uh uplifting conversations i've had uh in a in a long while um as, as we continue to deal with all that we're dealing with uh here in may and here in 2021 um for those of you wondering or, or curious uh, i was as well so i, I asked him uh, during the recording, um, Seifan's uh, Korean name is Sehwan, and uh, it was his father who uh, decided to spell it in a, in a very unique and special way. Um, and, and so uh, if you're wondering uh, what his uh, Korean name or his given name was, uh, it's Sehwan. Um, shout out to my wife for uh, thinking that was the correct answer. Um, thanks again for tuning in. Uh, please do take a moment to share this episode out. Uh, to your friends, to your colleagues, uh, to your family, uh, whether it is texting them or throwing this on your social, uh, please tag us where you can. Uh, Sefan's been doing such, such great work. Um, and I know that we would not know as much uh, about what's going on out there if it were not for him. And so thank you so much uh, for, for uh, helping us uh, amplify his story. Uh, might be the first time that we're learning uh, about Sefan's own personal background and why he does what he does. Um, again, follow us where you can at the Asian Americans on Instagram, uh, and other places at the Asian am on Twitter. Um, you can email us at any time. Hello at the Asian Americans. Uh, we'll bring you directly into my personal inbox and I'd be happy to engage. Um, 
as as we wrap up or as we turn the corner at the middle of APAM, uh, continue to uh, think about those in our community. Continue to um, uh, care for each other, check in on each other. Uh, as Saifan said, uh, the stories will get better once we take care of each other. And as we continue to also deal with uh, global news as it pertains to our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world in Asia, uh, continue to think and uh, pray if you do pray uh, for those in India, uh, for those in Palestine and in so many other places uh, that are going through so much. So thank you so much. Uh, check the show notes uh, for links to uh, Sefan's stories. Uh, follow him on Instagram and on Twitter um, and amplify all of our stories. So thank you again so much for joining us. Uh, do subscribe to the show if you have not. And please do leave a review and rating on Apple. Uh, thank you. Uh, it is an honor to share our stories collectively together uh, here on The Asian Americans. My name is Jerry Wan, and it's been an honor to be your host. Signing off until next week. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.